This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of Meaningful Sport. In today's episode, we talk about sport and physical activity in later life with Professor Emmanuel Tulle from Glasgow Caledonian University. She's one of the leading scholars in theorizing how older people make sense of and manage the process of bodily aging from a cultural perspective. For me, this is a very special episode because I've read her work for so many years and found the ideas thought-provoking, as well as certainly informing my own thinking and research around sport and aging. Welcome to the podcast, Emmanuel, and thank you so much for finding the time to talk to me today. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a great pleasure. And just the story that I started I've read your work for so many years and as a part of my PhD work, I became very interested in that aging dimension. So I was doing live story research with runners and aging was not the first focus that I thought I was going to look at. But in terms of how runners and athletes were trying to make meaning out of that becoming older and what it means for their involvement, that became like a crucial question for me. And that was what led me to read your work on Masters Athletes. And I would just love to hear how you got into doing that work in the first place. What attracted you to that research area? Um, well, it, it's actually a, a long story, so I'll try to make it brief. But um, I had been working in the area of aging for some time, um, but primarily from a social work perspective. And um, then I discovered the sociology of the body as well as I was discovering or getting to grips with the sociology of aging and what at the time was also called uh, social gerontology which which encompasses a lot more than just sociology and um and when this was happening which was really in the 90s there was a, a great um um I suppose, development of theorizing in, in aging, which m- made it really quite exciting, made the prospect of studying aging very exciting. So it wasn't just about um, uh, noticing, you know, that uh, old people have declining bodies, but it was actually interrogating why uh, we um, conceptualize the um, aging in particular ways, why we understand it in particular ways, and uh, or uh, how can we manage the decrements of aging, or even how can we manage the old as, as a burden and as a problematic group of people. So, so I was really interested in, in developing more theorizing and uh, a kind of richer, more exciting material 
in aging. And so that led me to consider the aging body, primarily because in most of the work that is done in this area, the body is always there. You know, if we talk about social work or social care with older people, then we're talking about managing the bodies of, of old people. Um, or if we talk about uh, healthcare with the healthcare of older people, then, you know, inevitably it is also about the body. But it wasn't terribly well theorized in the sociology of aging. Um, in fact, it seemed to disappear. And uh, the work of Mike Hepworth um, and Mike Featherston and even Brian Turner seemed to suggest that we should actually turn our attention to the body. And, uh, and I thought, well, yes, that's what we'll do. And that's what I'll contribute to. And But there was very little research being done in sociological perspectives on aging, really, and lived experience of of aging. The work that Mike Featherston, Mike Hepworth and so on was, was developing seemed to put the focus, so take the body into account, but put the focus mostly on the social and cultural aspects of aging and most, mostly the social aspects of aging with statements like, I don't feel old and the development of this theorizing um, as or conceptualizing of how people experience their own aging as the mask of aging. So my body may have aged, but my me, myself, I haven't aged. Uh, I'm still stuck in the past at the age of, let's say, 20, 25, 35, it's uh, my body betrays my aging and is a mask uh, of the real me, the real ageless uh, me. Mm, Quite a dualistic conception, isn't it? Exactly, which I suppose, you know, people do engage with and use profusely, but uh, it seemed to um, negate the impact that not just the change in appearance, but also the change in bodily feeling might have. And we, we had very little evidence on what that would consist of, aside from thinking about pathology. So there was very little research which gave us a clue as to how people actually might feel about their aging other than saying, I don't feel old and, and reject, rejecting bodily aging altogether, or at least uh, pretending that they could do that. Um, it seemed to me that this wasn't really plausible. And at the time, I was myself at my mid-30s, and I, I was aware of, you know, some changes in, in my own body, particularly uh, I was experiencing injuries, um, and I, I, I was a runner at the time, or I was a budding uh, runner. So I thought there must be something more to it than, than this. So I decided to, to do some research on aging runners to find out how, actually how they felt. And how I got to them is because there was so, li- so little research in lived, felt experiences of aging. I had to find a group of people who might not be shy of talking about their bodies, which previous research had noticed. People had didn't have much of a language, a vocabulary to talk about their aging other than a vocabulary of illness, of malfunction, of disease. So I needed people who might be conversant with their bodies, both as lived, but also as narrated. And as I said earlier, I'm I'm a runner and I was aware that I was becoming, at the time, what we called a a veteran runner, because I had turned 35. And I thought, aha, runners, they will be conversant with their bodies. So I will do some research on them. And and it all started from there. Mm, Excellent. Just like you said, with being a runner, it's something that you are constantly in touch with your bodily self. I've also run for 
I guess, 15 years. And having that experience, you're very well in touch with yourself in terms of how your body is feeling. And at this mid-30s point where I'm at at the moment as well, it's you will start realizing, you know, some things might be changing in terms of your recovery and and so on. So I also see that that's like a perfect context to ask questions about aging and, and how you deal with that. So it would be lovely to hear a bit about your, your participants and, and how you then conceptualize that research project. So um, <clears throat> like with all um, programs of research, particularly, you know, what we might call blue sky research, this wasn't done for, for impact, especially, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, that particular concern of, uh, in research wasn't as developed as it is now. So it's what we call blue sky, I, you know, I would call it blue sky research. So, um, so the project changed quite a bit, uh, or at least my own thinking and reflections changed quite a bit uh, over time. Having said that, what I, I decided to do is to look for mostly long distance runners, if I could, men and women who had been running for some time. So who were already uh, advanced in age. And <laughs> I hate to say it, but I, I set the lower age limit at 50, which actually is quite young. As I say this as a 60 year old myself. And the selection criterion uh, was that people should have been running for about 15 years so that they had acquired um, enough knowledge about their bodies um, and that, which would then make any kind of even imperceptible change visible to them or, or sensible to them. And um, men and women, and I managed to recruit 21 of them and that included track and field athletes, particularly for the women. And I had to lower the age limit for the women to 48 because I was actually struggling to find as many women as men who had been running long distance for over 15 years. And there is a, a reason for that. I was totally uh, unaware of the history of running and particularly long distance running in relation to gender. Uh, or class for that matter, because uh, there's obviously uh, a class dimension to, to running and track and field athletics. And I became aware that at the point that I was catching women, that I was trying to recruit women, I was actually trying to recruit from a cohort of people who would have been excluded from long distance running. So women were excluded from long distance running from about 1928 until well, until the first Olympic marathon in 1984 um, in LA. And I was totally oblivious to this. So, um, so really, women had been able to start running long distance in the late 70s, early 80s, and uh, the introduction of um, city marathons. And then I work in Scotland, so in Scotland, it would have been the Glasgow Marathon. Um, was really um, quite a turning point in uh, encouraging, allowing, but also encouraging uh, women uh, to take up long distance running. So that's why I had to change my entry criteria uh, for, for the women. 
Yeah, and many people are surprised to hear about this history because now it's kind of forgotten that it's such a recent thing that women were actually allowed to take part and compete. Exactly, and and um, and actually, it still has an impact uh, today. Uh, you know, if we look at participation rates, uh, men still dominate in athletic pursuits, especially beyond um, adolescence. In adulthood, you know, women have. Uh, are quite often primary carers of children, so they have less time. But it's not just a question of time. It's also a question of giving yourself permission to uh, invest the time and the effort to have what we might call a running career. And I don't mean by this a professional career, but simply an involvement, a serious, steady Uh, involvement in a sport which is fairly time consuming I know that we can just run out of our door front door you know just put on our running shoes and just run out but actually if you want to maintain your um, ability to run especially over um, several years then you have to have a program of maybe speed training um, you have to maybe go to the gym it's not just a, a case of running around the block It's a bit more time consuming. And soon enough, in any case, you start competing, even if they're just, you know, open races, uh, local 10K, you know, these things still take time to prepare for. So um, so there you are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And your work is then focused on looking at these older runners. I mean, if you're 35, in, in generally, you are not considered an old person, but just like you mentioned in the sport context, then you can enter the masters and veteran categories. Maybe you can just share a bit of looking at that, realizing that decline in performance and, and how runners talk about that and how they make meaning of that and how, how they manage it. Yes. Um, so the first thing to say, that, which I meant to say earlier, is that when we consider issues around aging, n- not just in sport and physical activity, but in any other uh, setting, It's important to think about history. So the the runners themselves and the history of running, you know, emerged as a really important um, aspect, you know, something that intersects with people's biographies and gives them shape and 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 affects how they might uh, envisage their future as runners or or otherwise. So the fact that many women could not run uh, would have affected their self-identification as either sporty or a runner or otherwise, you know, so be less likely to do that, to achieve that particular, to give themselves permission to say, I, I can be, you know, I, I can be sporty, for instance. So so there, there's, there's that bit um, that I think is, is worth um, bearing in mind that history, how history is, is really important. So we don't live our lives on our own uh, in a vacuum. Our lives are intersected by the social and the cultural and also the historical. So I think it, it, this is worth uh, emphasizing. The other thing is that what history did, the, so the, there's a kind of more global history of sport. And then there's the micro history, you know, of particular fields of sport like running. And what, let's focus on the male runners for, for now. What the male runners discovered as they were getting older is that, uh, first of all, 
they, they discovered the veteran movement, what we now call the master movement. So as they were getting to about 40, this movement kind of grew in some importance and gave them a home to be able to continue running. So at the point where they might have been retiring, they found a way to continue running. What they also found is different ways of training. So what they the runners themselves called um, scientific training. The forms of training that we know quite well just now with interval training, fartlek and and, uh, and so on, you know, a greater attention to nutrition and so on. So as they were getting older, instead of running less fast, they were, relative to their age, running faster. They continued training for marathons and so on, long, long distance runs or 10Ks. And they were actually doing much better relative to their age. So rather than actually going into decline, they improved their performance and they were able to increase their mileage. There were other reasons. Um, they, they were all uh, members of clubs or most of them were members of clubs. And in the clubs, uh, you know, when they, they were younger men, um, it was really frowned upon for them to go and train by themselves. What mattered was the team. So there was a, a real com- community spirit um, in the team. So it was frowned upon to go and do some training by yourself. Whereas as training developed, then it became much more individualized. And so these men could apply different training techniques and go out by themselves and improve their performance. So that was the, the first thing to note that these men seemed to um, buck the trend, as it were. They were still losing time. And in fact, one of them said that uh, when he was 42, he ran a marathon. Now, from memory, I can't remember the time, but, you know, just just under three hours. And he said, I've lost 17 minutes in a few years. And I said, well, did did you feel it? Did that surprise you? He said, yes, that really surprised me because I still felt I was running as fast as normal. So, you know, still had the wind in his hair. <laughs> you know, he still had those those um, sensations of running, but he had lost time. But he said, you know, that he didn't lose as much time as he might have done had he not transformed his training. But it it's really the care and attention, the um paid to their bodies, uh, that was really quite remarkable. So they still trained. And when I asked them why they did all this and why they ran, they said, I run to run. You know, a few of them said, I run to run. And what they meant by that is that they were treating their bodies in effect, as physical capital, um, if, if we use Bourdieu's uh, conceptualization. That is, you know, the material, their tool, um, to s- gain and, and seek legitimacy in the social field of running. And by continuing to run in some ways, they were continuing to, uh, they were giving themselves leg- legitimacy to um, self-label as, as runners. So the running itself was functional for continuing to run despite the fact that they were aging and that some of them had quite substantial health problems. Mm-hmm. And sustaining that identity of a runner. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. So mm-hmm. so the, the, there was, you know, a labor of identity making, the identity negotiation, which still uh, prevailed. And that included also in relation to their spouses, um, having to 
continued justifying to their spouse that they still ran, that this was their space and they weren't going to um, to compromise on that. And did their spouses start questioning that, why are you still running? Was, was that something that came up? So I didn't get that sense that there were two men um, who caused me to pause. In fact, I went and interviewed one of the guys whose wife was there. Um, now, these people were in their 70s by then. She, I have to say that she looked considerably older uh, than him. And I thought she was going to leave the room as the interview started, but she stayed. And, you know, we were in the living room just off the kitchen. And I really couldn't bring myself to saying to her, could you leave now, please? You know, I was in her home and she seemed really engaged. So I thought, right, okay, we'll, we'll leave her here. And then, well, I, I won't say anything. And then we'll see how it pans out. And actually it enriched the interview, I would say, because at some point she said to me, I thought that when he retired from his job, because this man had obviously worked full time for the railways, that they would be able to go on holiday to places other than places where races were uh, organized, like Mallorca uh, <laughs> and so on, you know, in, in, in the south of, of, of Europe, in Bamiar climbs. And she said, you know, when he retired from his job, she thought he would retire from running and then they could start, you know, going elsewhere. Well, that is not what happened. On the contrary, he redoubled his involvement with running. <laughs> he had more time. <laughs> so she was really disappointed. But she she put up with it. Um, so And she seemed uh, very supportive. There was another man whose whose wife, I, I think his running was a real source of tension with his wife. And he defied her by continuing to run. But I think she was really, really fed up with it. So this had definitely had to be negotiated. And, and one runner did say to me that some men stop running because their wives said you'd have to stop running. You know, for instance, men when who were young and got married at the point that they got married and, and the children started arriving, the wives just put their foot down and said, the running has to stop, you know, and uh, many did. So in various ways, the runners that I interviewed are survivors. They're survivors of illness, of injury and also of uh, family obligations. And they had successfully managed to, to maintain their needs as runners. For the women, it was different. Yeah, I was going to say that we talked about the men's stories. So let's now move to the women's stories. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, with pleasure. So, so, so the women, as I said, um, had to be younger because I was really struggling to recruit women. So most of the women had started running in their 30s. Uh, only one had started running in her 20s. And again, it was the marathon, what they called, what both male and female runners called the, the marathon boom, these ma city marathons that started cropping up in, in the late 70s and early 80s, and which gave them the impetus to, to run. I had three uh, track athletes as well, but the women themselves had, one of them started running on a bet, Somebody said, haha, I bet you can't do this marathon. She was quite a heavy smoker. She said, I'll show you. And she started training for a marathon and then did it. And then that was it. She ran away, so to speak. The other two were the same. You know, it was the, the marathon that set it off. But what was interesting about them is that they had very supportive husbands, either husbands who ran themselves or 
husbands who were able to be very patient. So one woman, her husband would would come out on his bike with her. So if she went for a 10 or 14 mile run, he would cycle alongside her. But other than that, you know, they fulfilled uh, fairly traditional uh, gender roles, you know, in charge of, of children and domestic labor um, and so on. So as long as that wasn't disrupted, everything was fine. Once we had husbands who were runners, then find it a lot, easy, a lot easier to continue with their running and didn't need to seek justification from their husbands. Having said that, in the, the words of one track athlete, now this, this lady at the time was 67 when I interviewed her, she was the one who stopped herself. She said, well, you know, when my kids or adult children come to me on, on Sunday for Sunday lunch, I can't say, well, sorry, I, I can't prepare lunch. I, I have to go for a run. So there was an, a little bit of, um, what would you call it, self-management, as it were, to try and combine family obligations, and especially fulfill appropriate gender roles and identities. So she needed to continue engaging in the labor of care as a woman and as a mother and grandmother and balance that out with her athletics. Mm -hmm. Did the women talk about feeling guilty or feeling conflicted if they sometimes prioritized running over that caring and relational role? No, they didn't feel guilt. So uh, this particular woman, I've just mentioned she just basically said well you know when the kids come around I just don't run you know that's it and then she she caught up the rest of the time it was weekends anyway so it might have been just a short run Mm -hmm. but her athletic training um, at the track for instance would have been unaffected because that was uh, during the week so what was really striking is that these people uh, both men and women had a, a very tight training regime or very disciplined training regime which tended to take place you know weekdays with a rest on Fridays and then maybe a long run on a Sunday so these these tended to be unaffected so i didn't sense any guilt but what i sensed is a is a management of time to make sure that the running could be done and at the same time family obligations could be met but it does help as a woman for instance if your husband is himself a runner um, so you don't have to justify and then the kids could be roped in as well into running one woman uh, actually um, was on her own most of the school holidays with the kids because of her, her husband's job So she used to measure a mile starting and finishing at her house. So the kids would be either inside playing, watching TV or outside, depending on the weather. And she ran that mile several times to get her miles in. And then the kids would come out with a glass of water so she could could take a drink, you know, in the middle of that training. So the women had to be quite creative. I didn't sense... The, the need for so much creativity uh, amongst the men. Yeah, and I mean, I would love to talk away on, on this topic. I'm a runner myself and fascinated about this work that you've done. Soon to close, what are your thoughts in terms of this master's veteran movement? That's something that has very much grown in popularity also after you've done your research when that was quite novel and now there's much more work on this as well. And there are some debates about whether this master's or veteran movement is 
in a broader societal level, changing perceptions of aging and crafting this more positive narrative of aging that resists this aging as decline. Where I guess others could be saying that the master's athletics in some ways is based on a similar type of idealization of being youthful and strong and fast and these ideals that are part of sport more generally and sport has been generally something that you did when you were young in this traditional life course uh, script so what are your thoughts on on these questions and these debates well i i I will admit to being fairly conflicted about it i as i've already mentioned my own age and the fact that i you know i still run I hill walk as well. So whether I'm engaged in a project of youthfulness or agelessness when I do this is a moot point. I think the body is absolutely essential to consider aging and it is an important part of our identities as we grow into adults and into older adults. The question, I suppose, is what we want to do with that body, what we manage it for. And I would say that uh, associating being physically active in later life with the burden of aging, or rather the prevention of the burden of aging, is not sustainable. And I think we need to look at broader issues uh, before we, we, we try and theorize and conceptualize this. What is it that we would want to be doing this into our later years? Um, because it is hard work and, and it is time consuming. And sometimes the body will throw curveballs at you and will no longer cooperate. So you, you'll have to, to find ways of, of, of dealing with that. So, and I think that's really important. That's why the body has to be taken into consideration. Having said that, I think that engaging in sport is, if that is to maintain your presence in the world and that is what you want, I think that is a valuable thing to do. So rather than um, have a very instrumental approach to the management of the aging body, as I said, you know, for for the prevention of illness and and so on, or rather for minimizing the costs to healthcare organizations, if we move away from that particular uh, narrative, which I think is not necessarily sustainable for individuals to take up physical activity or to maintain physical activity, but rather we reframe it as a practice of freedom, then I think it's it's a lot more valuable. And it means that individuals can themselves decide what they want to do. But all this is predicated on, on the availability of injury support as we get older. Certainly when the people that I interviewed were still running and were experiencing injuries, they were telling me stories of lack of support, having to go for private health care, for instance, because doctors would not uh, give them any kind of um, support. Nowadays, things have changed a little bit. We're a lot more uh, sensitive to the needs of older bodies, but it still requires a fair amount of financial capital at one's disposal to be able to pay for um, to, for physios and so on. So, you know, so there's no point asking people to be physically active um, and then not provide them with the, the support that they need if they really want to, to take it seriously and to be physically active for into their 80s and, and 90s. Unless you're graced with one of these indestructible bodies and, and joints. Um, but that, that's a few of us. At, at the moment, you know, physically active older people are still, I've mentioned the 
concept you know survivorship they're still survivors because their bodies has haven't let them down or not too much and they've been able to to manage the transition into old age but that that is not in everybody's gift you know so it it's being realistic about what we can do with our bodies as we age because as i said the body is real it has real ontological presence it affects what we do and how we view our futures um, as we get older you know yeah. it's not an it's not an infinite uh, tool it has finite capital ultimately thanks for joining us this week on physical activity research through podcast if you like the show make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on twitter this podcast is made possible by listeners like you Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.